Hello, everybody. Welcome to the new bonus episodes, or the bonus series, for the second season. Um, I attended the Costa Rican Big Data School, and, you know, I thought that maybe, maybe, <laughs> some of you can take some value out of this. Um, you know, many aspiring computer scientists and software engineers would really benefit from the things that they talk about in this event. This was a five-day event from Monday through Friday, um, from 8 to 4, <laughs> so it was pretty extensive, and they talked about a lot of different subjects and, uh, you know, very important things that you got to know in this day and age with big data and data science and data analysis. So I thought, you know what, I'll put this up. Maybe some of my listeners can take advantage of this and can benefit from listening to really, really high-end professors uh, from the... Texas Advanced Computing Center. Um, so, our instructors will be Weiya Shu. He's a PhD and the group lead for data mining and statistics group. Prior to joining TAC, he obtained a master's degree in biological sciences and a doctoral degree in computer science from the University of Texas at Austin. Then there's also Charlie Day. Charlie Day is the Director of Training and Professional Development with the User Services Group at TAC with a background in web development and scientific computing. Charlie's responsibilities at TAC include organizing, developing content, and building curriculums for TAC's academic course selection taught in conjunction with several departments at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as for TAC's professional development and educational team. Oh well. Oh, and just a quick thanks to Danny Sie, who was the one who recorded these uh, segments. Without him, we wouldn't have this awesome bonus round. <laughs> so thank you very much, and enjoy. Um, can anybody tell me what's a, what the seems missing from this picture comparing to the picture of supervised learning? Yes. Yes, very good. So the label was missing. Right, so we call for the supervised learning, the, for the training data side, we have the data, and we also have the labels, and go through selections, and go through machine learning algorithm generating models. But for the, so that's what we call the supervised, because the model will be supervised by the label, which are a reflection of how people uh, label the data, how people think the data should be. So what I also am having, I'm, I'm also having asking the question and emphasize the question, what are we learning, right? So in the supervised learning uh, method, what we are learning is uh, how people actually label the data. We are trying to learn a way that we can explain why this, why given this set of data values, they should be assigned with these labels here, okay? We call that. Uh, but here, since we do not have a label here, so what we are trying to learn here, or what, or what's the purpose of unsupervised learning? Anyone? Yes. 
Yes, that's another good way to describe them. So both of you at least talk about the same thing. Is uh, even without the labels, and we can still try to learn if there's any natural groupings within the data or any patterns from the data. So what unsupervised learning really want to learn, want to really get out, or what the model will reflect is the structure embedded in your data. So it's trying to just given this training data, we want to un we want to uncover uh, what uh, what type of grouping is there, or if there are some repeated patterns or some repeated values. We want to turn, we want to be able to use. Uh, and also, it's not just like the structure groupings, and uh, there's a lot of like a, a different type of things uh, we can learn from it. Uh, so I, in the last part, in the bottom part of the slides, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make you some common method or uh, task you heard about, like clustering, and what they, what they exactly doing in the unsupervised learning sphere. So clustering is a method that trying to find the groupings in your data side and is trying to find the uh, assign the membership to it. And the association analysis is another form of unsupervised learning. It's trying to find the connection or inference among your instance uh, as well. Then we have a, a method like the Gaussian integer model. So what they're trying to do is trying to uh, learn what's the density distribution of your data. And those maybe sounds strange or foreign for you right now. But hopefully after I go through the next several slides, we can make that and maybe the more clear. And also we have the method in unsupervised learning that can try to um, give you a different representation of your data. Um, so those are very important things, and those are the things I do want you to maybe keep in mind when you have an actual problem you want to think about what's your goal, whether you want to find a group or whether you want to find another alternative representation of your data. Then you can go looking and select the appropriate method to use. Okay? So I won't be able to have a, uh, the time to go detail with all of those. Uh, we'll start with the learning of the data representations because this is uh, actually I got several questions about the, how you pre-processing data and how you get uh, redundant data or uh, how you get without correlation among your data. Uh, so one of the uh, approach people can use is through the principal component analysis. So technically, principal component analysis is a linear algebra transformation. It transforms your input matrix into, a, into another form. Um, so in the machine learning um, scope, it's often being viewed as a data transformation method. Um, so here is just very, very abstract view. Is uh, if you think about your data, presented by some type of linear form of multi-variables. And you can express them as the first equations perfectly. Right? There might be likely existing another solution that can also describe your data. Right? It could be the same dimension or it could be different dimension. It could be, uh, so that's the kind of the core, like simplest ideas inside the principal component analysis is to, it's a data transformation. We are trying to find another way to describe the data. Okay? So the potential usage of that is to help you to visualize data, and, then, and some question about the noise filtering. So this is a good way to help you to filter out some noise and do the feature selections. Okay, so um, let's see what's about the change data representations about. Right? 
<coughs> so the first one, the next slides, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. The first one um, is the one is a set of the two dimensional points. So that's again is being randomly generated. Uh, the code you can find in my unsupervised learning Python notebook as well. You can try them yourself. Um, uh, then we the second picture you see in the right now. What I what uh, in addition to the points now you see two arrows here, right? So one is along this line. It somewhat should, uh, seems like uh, a regression line so what we got before. But then you have uh, in orthogonal to these lines, you have another small vectors out. Um, so what those two uh, try to uh, show is actually the first two components of a singular value decomposition of your original data matrix. Um, so that's some of the fancy mathematical terms. But let me just ask you, what do you think these two vectors reflect? Or what do these two vectors trying to show or trying to represent? So, so those, um, like see, we plot in our data in a coordinate systems, right? So when we plot in our random generated data in the first pictures, and we using a coordinate system like this. And what these two components trying to show you is actually the, the top two components that can best to say along which vectors your data is being distributed out, your value is being distributed out. So if we just look at this one, it's easier to understand that our regression line, so it's basically saying our data is more likely to distribute it near around this line that way. So the second line is a sort of the second or smaller components to this, and then it will show not only our value tends to distribute along this line, they are not perfectly formed one line, everything on that line exactly, but also, uh, but we are, they are also uh, distributed a little bit out for those things as well. So that's what those two components, two vectors try to show. It's a two uh, dominant directions where your data is distributed along, okay? So with that, what we can do is, uh, what if we're do not, we don't use the current attribute uh, current uh, coordinate system to show those data, but instead we use a coordinate system along this two line, and maybe scaling to those uh, vectors and to show uh, the data, then we will get this, right? So this is the same set of data points, and just under a different kind of coordination systems. Um, okay. So, so, so this is set of data, and this is, this is the same set of data between here and here. And what it does is, so, is what I mean by change of the data representations. So the on the first one is a, uh, is one way you you mapping your data into, and on the second one is another dimension or another space you are project your data into there. Okay. So why this is important to us is uh, you can see here you may see how the data is more linear correlated, right? So that may not be a good thing, right? When you do it, you may say, oh, let's just using one dimensional, get rid of the other. 
But if you think about as a principal component, when you ask you to do decompositions, the data seems like more evenly distributed in that space. So that might be better for you to use in some other method to do the classification, right? So if you think your method being heavily affected by the collinearities, and then if you do a projection to a different space, you think that more uniform distribute, you can actually use the same method that doesn't work before with these new representations, that actually may work better. And then you get, because they are the exactly the same data size, so you can get in the same type of class labels there. Okay. That, any questions? So this one is just a shape. We only use the first dimensions of the floor within the original coordinate system where we just highlighting it's more like the linear regression lines would we would we guide here. Okay. You can you should be able to try this with a notebook, I think. Let me see if I do have So again, the, the unsupervised learning is a different notebook here. Uh, let's see if it's working. So the first one is uh, some blocking functions, and then the next block is a uh, principal components and uh, analysis. Um, we're generating a data site. Uh, it's uh, oh, it's uh, up here. I didn't generate the data site here. It's uh, using the uh, uh, Bryce Tensor data site. So where you can see how the two class of the Bryce Tensor data can be distributed along the two principal components. So that makes them seem like a more separate of occupying different areas. Um, yeah, so now actually, uh, since we can run this now, the other thing is, uh, it's the same data set I've been using since uh, 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 supervised learning master as well. So this is the same uh, breast cancer data set. Uh, this is the decision boundaries and how classified classify uh, those data with two dimensions from the original vectors. So where you see the data is more scattered around, uh, and maybe have a class uh, anywhere. Uh, where once we do the uh, principal component analysis, they may be better separated by the first two dimensions there. Okay. So that's the type of things you can explore. Um, So, so I have a slide that uh, talk about a little more about the two data sites we were using there for the breast cancer data site. They are from two classes, and there's over 500 observations. For each class, there are 30 feature vectors. Uh, you can use them for enterprise learning like this, and trying to see how principal component or other methods do that mapping and the projections. Uh, or you can use it as a, as a testing experiment in different uh, Supervisor learning master as well. Uh, I also had the visualization for the iris data size, so that's the data size we use in some other examples. It's a smaller one about the flowers. It kind of comes with the three classes there. So other than say using the principal components as a way to generating a different representation of your data, so it maybe works better. And the, the, the principal component itself can be a, a very good way to help you to pre-processing your data. Uh, so a common usage of the principal component is, uh, I heard people asking about anomalies and noise points in the data side. And those, if they are present allowed, they might be, affect your accuracy of your other method, other analysis method. So principal component 
is also a good way to help you to get rid of the noise. So how it can achieve that is, um, is go back what exactly the principal component does and how uh, it reflects. Uh, so uh, since I skipped the mathematical details slides, uh, so it's a little bit harder for me to explain that frankly here. But we call the function we have. So well, basically the principle is that we're assuming our data may be described by certain linear functions. Then we are finding another solution by describing that. Right? So in this case, we can call the new solution each of the dimensions has a new components there. And so what each of those new components there means is uh, they are contributing to the explanation of part of our uh, variance we can observe from our limited side, like how we are distributed. What, uh, if you go, uh, if you uh, add the notebooks, I actually have a, a nice example trying to show this. It's a nice one of explain the variance of the PCA. So what, what this one does is we load in the data side and we try to use the PCA components. And what we can say is in this case, we are, um, so we have a certain component out because the original feature vector has a certain, um, certain uh, 30 features. Uh, each data point has a certain dimensions. So the after physical components, we get a certain uh, components out. But that is an alternative representation of original data. Uh, what this one says is uh, uh, from like uh, this graph on the uh, x axis is uh, the different components. Uh, on the y axis is uh, what we call the a aggregated variance that can be explained by those components. Uh, what that, that means is uh, say if you're using entirely certain components, the solution you get should be pretty much exactly as your own solution. Now this is through a purely mathematical transformation there, right? But if you do not use uh, all the, uh, all the uh, components in your alternative solutions, if you use force of them, you lose some of the variance you could experience, so which means where you introduce some type of errors or poor approximations, but in return, what we get is uh, we can maybe focusing more on the on the component that either not belongs to noise or helps us to reduce the dimensionalities. So that is another important usage of the principal component is to help you to picking up or subset of the components you want to use, either to reduce the complexities, make the method more useful, or as a way to for the filter out filter out the noise. So go back to the slides. Um, there's uh, examples uh, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in the code as well. So uh, we have original data from the scan of the uh, handwritings uh, of the digits. Uh, so there's zero, one, two layers. Uh, and we have, a, uh, we can add additional noise on there. So you see we can add more of the uh, five pixels in there. And then we can run the principal components. Uh, and only using, we can select What's a, what's a subset of components we want to use and to reconstruct a data point since we only choose the dominant component so, so some of the noise components in the later we expect in the later are going to be automatically excluded from the generated data series. Okay. Yes? Is the example that only 
is an example. In this example, like the only charge of fixes is Yes, it's a it's a um, uh, it's a pixels, right? So um, let me see what the code. So I have more examples for using a different data type and you know uh, different device. Um, and in, and here uh, we have the input the data and the input data uh, is from uh, another building data site with those built in the digits like those are the two digit scans and it's each a very small. Uh, like picks, uh, small uh, bitmaps. Um, so you use each bitmap entirely as uh, the input vectors. So when you do the PCAs, we get the entire the vectors out as well. But those are corresponding, as you said, is each individual pixels here. Uh, then if, let's say, this is the original uh, shapes, it's a, uh, almost 1800 times 64. <coughs> we have 1800, uh, the, uh, Image and the CP4 is of each vector. So each of those is an 8 by 8 uh, small pixels on the character to that. And then we have PC components and being generated. Uh, and then we have uh, the filtered shapes and the after we like any noise and then we find the value of Okay. Um, so some quick summaries the PCA is uh, now can be, it's a way to. For you to find a alternative representations of your data, and it can be used directly uh, as a way to filter out some of noise from your data, or it can be used as a pre-processing steps help you to do feature selections. So you only use subset of attributes and to do that. Um, there are some uh, still some uh, limitations and uh, uh, of the PCAs. Uh, so there are some other alternative methods as well. Uh, I don't have time to go through them, um, but some other common use methods I also have example here, which is very interesting. Um, let's see, I have uh, the next one is called a multi-dimensional scaling here. Um, I don't have slides if I don't have to go through this, but I apply this to the same breast cancer side. It's to a different type of projections with your side, so not just the principal components. And I have another method later on, it's called uh, uh, another transformations that can be applied into the different cases here. Um, so if you have time, please uh, go ahead and try them and you see what it, what they are what you can get to you. So all three methods can give you alternative representation of your data. Any questions about uh, this type of method, PCA and the Um, the other uh, type of the unsupervised uh, learnings I want to introduce is uh, uh, about learning data structures and those type of the tasks is already being called as a clustering. So we want to say given this data, we want to find out if we have a certain number of clusters or how my data might be grouping together, might be uh, putting them together. Uh, the most mostly commonly used one is probably the most popular one is called K-means clusterings. So how many of you know this? K-means clustering algorithms? Yes, you quite few of them. So, um, so the idea is very simple. It's sort of like a 10 years neighbors, right? So uh, in this case, we do not have a neighbor, or we do not have a class labels. 
but we can still assign, say, if my data points existed in some space, then for each point, I want to find this kind of natural formation of them. So we start with a set of random points, assuming that's our final centers. Uh, then for each one, we will calculate in, uh, a distance between this point to all other points. Then we will assign for all other points, we will assign the, the group membership to the centers closest to it. So it's a similar to the previous neighbor where for each point we want to find its neighbors and based on neighbors to define its, uh, its class label. And here is uh, we start with the set of the assumed centers. Then we, for each data points, we find the closest center. Then we like that data to assume the membership of that center. Okay. So they are all distance based, all based on distance. So there's a nice illustration about how that process does. Um, so here, it, again, it's a two-dimensional data, so I can count them for illustration purpose. But the same thing applies to the arbitrary dimensions as well. So what you are seeing here is a bunch of data points. Um, now you also see uh, three big crowds. So in this case, we want to do a K equals three clustering, so which means we are trying to find to see if our cluster or we want the algorithm try to divide in our data into three groups. Okay? So the first one doesn't really matter, we can just randomly generate in the initial one. And then like the algorithm work itself and iteratively we generate the final result. So assuming this is the location of the initial uh, centers we selected, then once we select in the uh, we can for, we can pick any points and com compute the distance from this point to the center one, center two, center three, uh, whichever uh, center is, uh, is, is closest to, we will put them at the same group. Uh, for illustration purpose, I use the uh, red, green, and blue to illustrate the three group memberships. Okay, so those are not ground truths for your class label. It's just uh, I, this iteration is giving this three center and the two center of my clusters, those are the group, uh, those are the group membership we will assign to. Okay. So this is iteration zeros. So once we have these iterations, will does this look like a, a good uh, grouping or group clustering example for you? No, right? So we feel like there's too much of them are uh, together. So what happens with the algorithm is uh, uh, once we do this group membership uh, assignment, we will recompute based on how many red points, how many green points, how many blue points. We have visually see those are not centered for all the green points anymore. Those are not centered for all the blue points anymore. This might be the center for the red, but who knows, right? Uh, so we do that, we can recompute what's the center under this assignment. So now what you get is uh, you get a new set of centers, right? So you see the green one move down, blue one move down, the right a little bit move down. Then when you get to a new center, you can go to the different calculation again and then assign the closeness between each point to each of the centers. What the result is you get a different set of the cluster assignments as well. So you see the there's more right groups of the nice green, nice blue. <coughs> And we can continue this, and you see the center may be gradually move out, uh, and this iteration four, and, and this iteration five. So here it looks like more reasonable grouping that the cluster is out of the data. Right? So 
after we do iteration five and iteration six, it's pretty much it's not changing. So we know it's, it reaches what we call the converging uh, state, and then we stop that user and then we generate those as output. Any questions or thoughts about this? Have you, have you, have any of you used the cadence passing in the practice? So what's the number one problem with the cadence passing? Yeah, because certain points are not sometimes see the strange Yes. So the algorithm starts with the random stuff. So first of all, we start with the random points. So which means the algorithm each time it may actually generate a different result if we are applying a different uh, uh, type of starting points. So we have another example here. Is uh, this is the same this set of data points, and but the initial central selection are different. So you see the initial cross is different. Um, if we go through the same process, at some point we actually they actually stay there. They actually the relation part. So you get a, a different set of the, Faster implementations are. So that's the same with the Kinis passing. It's, uh, it's running really fast, it's, run, it's really effective, and it can be done effectively in a distributed way. But the result is never going to be the, uh, a global optimal result. It's always subject to uh, your initial selections as methods. Um, <coughs> based on different uh, situation selections, you may actually get a different result. Okay? So that's the number one thing. And what's the number two things you often feel? That, yeah, exactly, the number of k's, right? So for the illustration, I'm just using number of k equal to three. It might be reasonable, or maybe you can think about here, we should have a four, two class, or five. So there's a never a good way to say how many k's there is, okay? So the number of case selection and the initial situation selection, putting them together, which means it's uh, even Kibbe's classing is a very good algorithm. It's not an algorithm as a classifier. So even you know, I expect the three clusters in my data. Running Kibbe's algorithm thousand times may even not actually give you that perfect three clusters out, right? Um, and sometimes it's very hard to control the uh, centroid as well. So if you think you are very smart and you think I can pick the, the cluster center, correctly at the first time, uh, maybe you really can do that. Uh, maybe you make one mistake that may be affecting the result. Uh, so for this set of slides, what we have here is a comparison. So we have uh, 10 clusters, and uh, what we want to do is uh, if we put in a different cluster in central selections, uh, so the first the one on the left, it seems um, worse because we have a two, two centroid on one side, two centroid here, two centroid here to central here, to central here. On the, on the other side, so we have one here, one here, one here, one here. It's almost correct, except we are missing one here, but putting two of them here. So just from iteration one, you may think the one on the right is more correct than the others, right? But if you run multiple iterations, you think the, the final result is actually the opposite. And you get in the one left, we can actually convert it into somewhere, somewhat the optimal solutions, but the one on the left is basically trapped here under the hour game if you know how to something like that. Okay. Um, so what does this tell you? 
how many of you seen the don't yield this method? <laughs> it's so unreliable. Um, so for the unsupervised learning, that's a big difference between unsupervised learning and supervised learning. Remember what you are trying to learn here is you are trying to learn a structure. So you apply the k-means casting algorithm, regardless whether it's generating an optimal solution to you or not, you getting you should get insights about how your data organized, whether or what type of structure that you embedded into there. So there's no say to uh, to the question on how we can choose best k for my problems, how we can choose the best set of central to my problems. Um, there's a numerical method can help you do evaluating classing result, you can see which one is better. But ultimately the unsupervised clustering method what to give you is one type of the structures that embedded on your data. So you need ultimately to inspect those structures to see that one, which part of it makes sense or, or whether it makes sense at all. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, again, uh, more advanced or more used method is called bisecting opinions method. Um, so instead of asking you the question about uh, choosing case, and you can actually using the, the bisecting k-means method doing a hierarchical clustering. So it's using a top-down clustering. It starts with a one cluster and split the cluster into two, and, and, and until the process continues until it reaches the desired k clusters you want or some other conditions. So this is uh, take care of some of the problems, but doesn't make all the central selection or the randomness. Uh, take some of the randomness problems, but doesn't make other classing limitations go away. But here, the good thing about this is that you may not only just get in the k-mean classing, but you also have a chance to see a hierarchical structures of your data that might help you to understand these things better. Uh, I should have uh, both examples in, in here. So this is the k-means classing. Um, I made some like random insights, so it makes them like, more easy to show what's the impact on each of those. Um, and then, so the previous one is an easy case for keeping passing to solve. Because each cluster is very far away and very easy to do. And then there are some hard cases like this, where like you have this uh, uh, nonlinear form or non-circular form. So which is uh, something like really hard for keeping type of the distance-based algorithm to solve. Um, so yeah, just practice with this. Um, then there's, there are more variety of the classing algorithm. Like I mentioned, bisecting k-means give you a form of hierarchical classing result out. There are also other methods trying to give you hierarchical classing result out. And using those, sometimes you might get better result in some harder case where k-mean classing cannot be resolved. Right? Um, okay. So, the, so here's another way, if you generate a hierarchical classing result, you can generate a linear graph and to uh, visualize how those, those clusters being hierarchically organized as well. So. Any questions about the learning embedded structures of your data using as you find learning method? So the last one uh, I want to introduce is about learning what we call learning data densities. Uh, so this is much another ideas of the uh, doing uh, clusterings or, or finding the structures. So recall in the k-means clusterings, 
the class member here was decided by the closeness or distance-based method, right? So we still need to assess the distance measures, and we still need to evaluate that. Um, the, but like in the supervised classroom, the supervised method, we have a distance-based, distance like a linear-based method, we have a surface-based method. So in the current uh, supervised classroom uh, method, there are also methods that are based on more from clustering, from statistical, statistical series and uh, models. Uh, under those uh, types, the other thing you may hear or you may use, uh, being used a lot is called the uh, Gaussian mixture models or DMM. Uh, you may see that term somewhere. Uh, so the idea of the uh, Gaussian mixture models uh, is actually quite similar with the K-means clustering. It just instead of we're trying to find the K centers of k uh, spatially distributed data. Here, what we want to do is uh, we assuming our data coming from a composite distributions. Then we can further decompose those distributions into uh, k smaller Gaussian distributions and describing them instead. Uh, so the algorithm and the, there's actually share a lot of similarity with the Keynes algorithm, but just but just one is more act on the distance base and the other one is more act on the statistical distribution base. You want to you want to assess what's a, which one is a, the this particular data points is more uh, statistically likely to be presented in this in this distribution rather than the other distributions. Okay, so. I will skip the details here, but I want to, I have a several slides that runs very nicely about how the actual, uh, how the algorithm actually works. So it's a, it's, at the start, you may assume each one has the same distributions of your data. So for each of those uh, data points, you basically can assume some uh, uh, prior uh, uh, parameters. And then after each iteration, and you are trying to adjust based on how the points actually distributed, given this distribution assumption, and to like them to fit better with your uh, with assume the statistical uh, statistical uh, parameters, and you do that adjustment. So this process is similar to the one I show as the one for the k-means, where you see the cross move and where you see the membership moving. Um, it's the same thing, but you see the uh, the mean values, the mean point is moving, and then the uh, the statistical parameter is changing. So the one here is more from the green distribution, and one is more from the red distributions, and the other from the blue distributions. Right? So again, the, the idea and the white similars, and then, but the actual different principles and have a different suitabilities of the when it should be used. I have a, yes. Right. So now, uh, so if you ask me, give you some general advice about when the, this one is more suitable. Is uh, usually we get our data from multiple data sources. Um, there might be sometimes we have assumption on this data, maybe more from certain distribution. Let's say we have this uh, data set for our crops, and we have weather data, we have a spatial data, we have uh, some of the how people behave, and uh, and then. The ultimate outcome is how much crop we can yield for area, right? So in that case, it might be a good thing to fit for here because 
each of those have some natural components and require a different model to model them. And we don't want to take one simple vectors to use something to describe them. So yeah, if that's what you mean by composite data, then that's exactly what this one could be good for. So you will actually will find, uh, will find this asymmetric model has more applicabilities in general because a lot of real cases, we can assume them as a composite distribution of many factors. Right? So if you are, uh, so this is more, uh, so if you have some outcome, you think there's five different factors affecting them, those five factors may actually be uh, governed by certain physical process, and each of the process have a certain statistical distributions that you might be able to use. But again, it's a name is a Gaussian model, so it's a, assuming they are Gaussian distribution, but just with a different set of parameters. So that's actually another limitation for it. So, so that's about all I know it's about, and uh, I know I go through the market about super learning and super learning method. Uh, my uh, example, my exercise notebook has a lot of more information than my slides, uh, but that's meant for you to explore more. So you, uh, if you really want to learn more, I suggest you spending some time with my notebook. It's really good. Uh, it shows a lot of things, and I didn't explain here, I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't really have a chance to teach you. Uh, but yeah, so hopefully you get more time to practice. Uh, you won't easily get in that notebook out here, I can tell you that. Um, so any questions about the machine learning part, the supervised and supervised learning? Yes, okay. Yeah, so we saw this both supervised and unsupervised large-scale distribution computations here. Um, again, I actually had a exacting notebook with those examples as well. So the, I think all the methods I'm introducing here, uh, Spark has an implementation for you. Um, so if you keep, what you can do is, uh, depends on if you're very familiar with the Pythons, and you can play with the second learn. So that's what my Python example built out. Um, if you want to scale up, second learn doesn't give you that choice. Second learn is a single stripe. Uh, implementations, but you can find in the same implementation very similar interface, very similar API in the Spark, and you can use the Spark MLF to do those. And the method I introduced here, they all easy to be distributed, and the Spark has existing implementations. You can come with your own implementations, but they all big data friendly, and that's this method. Okay. Any other questions? The, yeah, the second learn is more second learn is really good. Uh, it's good for you to learn stuff and practice and experimenting with the smaller computers. Uh, but if you really get to larger scale, it's more to the smaller Okay, so the last big context I, I I need to cover is the deep learning side. So deep learning is really hot now. So you probably even see that from commercials, right? And the IBM has something deep learning cloud or or NVIDIA is uh, the, the, the stock being sky high in like two years, it's hardly due to this things. 
So in the science, I, I think most of us also do in science. It's a deep learning is really good because we provide a new solution to many existing problems. Um, not only is it's a new solution, but it's a very effective solution. And so it's first being applied to the email classifications and speech recognition. So now if you have an iPhone or you have some kind of smart home device, you can talk to it. So at the back end, it's all the of speech recognitions. And a lot of them are leveraging the learning processing sphere. Uh, it's being applied into the manual domain science, uh, really like a social, from social science to astronomy to biology, and uh, you can find the usage of the potential deep learning because it's uh, just as uh, a supervised learning method or unsupervised learning method supervised by machines or so, and you can just throw a problem to it and to see what comes out. Okay. So what exactly is uh, deep learning? And uh, how many of you have that answer? So the short answer is a neural network with multiple layers, right? So you may heard that before. So like uh, this is actually from one of my project. It's a traffic scene. So what we want to do is giving the uh, a image from the videos and go through some magical neural network, and we can recognize. Oh, here's a car. Here's a person, and here's a bunch of car waiting for the red lights, right? Um, so the uh, uh, so the so from this sense, and uh, it seems like machine learning, uh, deep learning is nothing different than machine learning. And we want to build up models, and we want to use some model to make some predictions. Um, but just in this case, the the key ideas is not really based on like support vector machines or statistically, but we want to use it in neural networks to do that, right? Uh, if you will look more closely, what's the difference between machine learning and deep learning, and why the machine learning and why deep learning getting so so much attention? Is uh, um, if you recall the picture I show you about supervised learning and uh, unsupervised learning, they have real data, they have a, a stack called the feature vectors, then we have an algorithm and to get a model. We call that part so. The feature vector is a small, narrow part on top, easy to features there. So that is a typically what needed for the machine learning, right? Even if you recall my yesterday's lecture about the machine learning pipeline, so we want to do assemblers, we have a certain pre-processing to selecting features, then use that one to work. So one of the actually very interesting thing about deep learning is uh, it's trying to remove this process for you. So you can really just give an input, uh, assuming it's the right format, so your code can read, can understand. And then the deep learning actually trying to find what's the best way to do the feature regression uh, for the rest of your task, and then go back iteratively to make that better. So, so in a sense, it's not only an improvement of the algorithm after you assess the uh, given is a set of feature vector, but also uh, algorithm trying to find to define what's the best set of vectors to be used and to do that. So what when we talk about machine learning, we I ask you what is being learned here, right? So for the deep learning, it's also a uh, called like hierarchical representation learning. So it's learning the best way to representing representing your data in a hierarchical ways. Um, so what that what let's see 
for the traditional image classification, right? So given image, we need to hand cross some features to say there is a circle or here's a, a certain regions we want to do this, here's a certain vector we want to interact. Uh, uh, deep learnings and the through this process, it's trying to automatically do this for you by a mathematical transformation and to form what they call deep structures to form that type of features. So the, in the deep learnings, you don't need to handcraft those features, but then each of the layer of the neural networks you get to it, it will generate a certain aspect of your data with certain features. Uh, so the a successful neural network, like ImageLite uh, or ResNet-Fitness, what they do is it's really to start with generating low-level local features, and then they go, then they go then the computation goes through your each layers of your network. It go from lower level features and gradually to the higher level features, and then became a uh, and then match to the final uh, classifiers. Um, so for the features, you may not really make any sense of it, but at the end, this is an iterator process. But at the end, it can adjust how the features being constructed and being represented. So and ultimately gives you a very good result at the end. Any questions so far about the basic idea? Yes. Uh, so you said uh, deep learning can be used to both classify also to select features. Yes. And we use only to select features, and these features can be used to classify using another it's going to be really hard. <laughs> Let me explain that uh, in, a, in a minute. But here is actual image being generated in some of the process. Can you make out anything what it's trying to do here or try to extract that from? See, that's a problem. So uh, that's also the advantage of deep learning, right? So when we do um, handcraft feature vectors, we are limited by our imaginations and by our comprehension. But basically, your brain capacity, how much you can consider it, and you get, you get your knowledge there. But for the deep learning, it's just completely transform that into a brainless mathematical computations. So you could get a really good result at the end, but in the each individual layer for you, it just maybe turns out the numbers. It's very hard for you to use that like single one and out and use that like reference something. Any other questions? Okay. So so what what I mean by that is maybe like uh, this can help you to understand better. So uh, we we mentioned deep learning the, the core is a neural network, right? So micro layers and So what's exactly a neural network? Neural network is uh, the set of research in the computer science it start maybe 1920s, it's very, very early. So it has been there for, for a while until recently deep learning make it so much more uh, attention now. Uh, so the neural network is starts and even now is a, um, as a mimic of the biological process. It's actually a good model of how our brain or any uh, life processing the information. So you have a certain uh, neurons and a synapse and to get the stimulates from outside, and then they are being combined together, and the admin goes to the brain, and you can make judgments, right? So you see something, you have a million of cells in your eye who's processing those individually, and they ultimately assemble the, the information within your brain to do that. So for the neural networks, it goes through the same process, 
So you have the input and you have hidden layers, and then each input will make some contribution to each one of those um, uh, units. And, and then the units will, based on the information it gathers, it will uh, send a feedback to the next levels. And then ultimately, it may be mined to certain output, like class labels, or a prediction, or inference layers. Okay. So that's sort of ideas. Um, then from that ideas, and the mathematically how people modeling them, again, it's actually go back to the simplest is the way we do is a linear regression. And we want to model them as a linear form. So if you take one of them, you have four inputs, and we can just assume this is a, a the contribution of all the input to this one is a linear com combination of it, right? Um, but if, but you notice the function here, so if the output is just W1 times X1 plus W2 times X2 all the way to W4 times X4, that would be exactly the same as a linear regression we talked about before. But now, interestingly, what you notice is that there's another function being on top of it, right? So it's not just a linear regression, but after linear regression, you want to do something. So that something is, a, is actually very important to determine how it can work. It calls uh, activation functions. So it's basically to say, uh, we need some kind of filters. And if we blindly take all the information precisely as is, it might be too much information for us. So we may want to make some selection or some filtering out process. <laughs> there are some commonly used activation functions. The uh, one used a lot is a common recertified linear units. And it's basically, it's fancy name, but it's actually just taking. Uh, if your output is a, uh, positive or negative, if it's negative, we just assume it's zero. Just ignore the negative thing, and we only take positive thing. Right? So there are other two other, sigmoid and uh, uh, tan edge, and we can talk about that later. Um, so now you see, um, it's a, at the core, it's a linear combinations of the input and the to produce them, and then they add in the actual activation functions. Uh, and uh, so down all the information necessarily made to the end. Okay. Um, so for the if we're using a RIOU uh, um, here, and what we get, we essentially get just a maximum between zero and whatever the linear result we can get here. Um, then the sigmoid also the soft max and the to trying to converting your your a values in the real range into something more into a zero to one range. Uh, that can match to the probability score or confidence scores. So this is a, a like high-level view about a basic one-layer neural network, how it works from input, it finding a set of the ways to satisfy a set of linear equations, and then finding all those parameters and getting them out. So the sequoid is the function is the one used for the softmax, uh, to mapping them, and the other activation function is the package. Uh, here's our view. Yeah. So they are all very simple mathematical functions, and they have a different usage. Um, it's hard to tell you for CNN use this, and for RN use this. Uh, it, it does, like for CNN people use REIU, for RN people use TIH. It's hard to, I can tell you that, but it's hard for you to answer why without really finding and seeing, understanding the process. Okay. Um, but the questions here, I want you to remember is why we need those activation functions. Why we just don't take the data combination. Yeah. 
results. That's why the high yield activation function from the result of even that each of them seems so simple as just take zero or or probably one just binding them to this zero one So recall one of the things we have been talking about when we talk about some support vector machines. I mentioned it's a uh, it's a very popular method right before the deep learning comes to, to the horizons. Um, why is that? Is because it can help you dealing with nonlinear relatives. Because nonlinear relationship is the one we actually encounter the most for our practical problems. Our practical problem is actually very hard to be modeled just as a bunch of linear combinations. So that's exactly what activation function does. Is adding that layer of non-linearities needed to simulating the complex representation of the data. So it's uh, it's actually very simple. It's just say sometimes I just don't consider these activations, and sometimes I do consider that. But the result will be uh, give you a more uh, more like uh, refined representations of your say, classification boundaries and layers. So the more neurons you add it. Um, because each one has a different activation function, each one became a, uh, uh, a, a parameters of your neural network as well, so you can have uh, better uh, classical boundaries being viewed than just a different combinations. Um, so as you can see, like the more uh, the more complex the neural network it is, and then uh, the, the more accurate or more effective they are generally became. So this is just uh, from the image light classification uh, examples. From the 2010, when the first deep learning first being come as a useful method, and they only using 28, uh, they only uh, using a small number of layers, and then uh, later on, and now like, the best one give you the minimum of the errors, they're using more than like 150 layers, and just to do the differentiations. Uh, so definitely more layers, it makes things better, but on the other hand, it's, uh, the more layer you have, the more computation you need it, and these things became more complex, right? So for example, go back to our simple example, is, uh, uh, we have four inputs, and then we need them. Just do the linear combinations, each one will have four weights, and then for each one of them, they will have a, have a bias values and two pair, then the submax will have another one, so we we essentially looking for numerical isentide base. There's a, a 16 plus 4 plus 1 and plus another 5, the 25 parameters just for these simple models. If you have 152 and if you, you have say 100 inputs, then that number quickly multiplies. Okay. But that's still the ideas of this, right, of the neural networks. Um, so how we can learn all those parameters from the training data side. Okay, um, so the general process is a uh, is uh, again it's similar like what we deal we deal with the uh, k-means. We have iterate the process. We start with something random, then we make the process work, then make the process eventually convert into optimal solutions. Uh, this is the same thing we're doing with the neural network here. Just in this case, we start with the initially set out random weights with our all those parameters. It could be say all 0 0.1. Then we let it run to see how prediction result it is. Then from that prediction result, we can calculate the errors to see here's so much errors from this set of weights. Then now we can do through a process we call bias propagations. 
and we can say if we want to minimize these errors, and how uh, we should adjust our weights from the end to the beginning, and to minimize those errors. So the next iteration, when we update the weights, we're getting less errors. And then we can repeat this process until the overall error base drop under the certain certain threshold. Yes, uh, which is a nice uh, threshold for the error. Um, that's actually uh, more problem specific. Uh, so you have a, a number of things, you have a number of iterations you want to run, and you also have a, a like an absolute threshold as you want your network to convert into. And there's a there's not a simple really straight. there is a simple threshold of converting uh, threshold, but there are also many other parameters that also contribute to that process. Is that your question? No, no, no. The, uh, it's a matter of the changing, not, not the eighty percent of accuracies. So the converting is uh, so that's actually what this slide trying to show. Uh, the converting is uh, when we say the converting is more like how much we can improve over the previous iteration, not really how much accuracy we can achieve. Right? So we may not be able to see achieve eighty percent even with design that, but. For this given your networks, for this master, um, 70 percent is the maximum we can get because we run a thousand iteration. There is no way we can do So the conversion, when I say that the threshold is refers to the difference between current iteration versus previous iteration. So the back propagation, the uh, implementation is called using method called gradient descent. Uh, so it's a um, Basically, you can view in them as a process of finding a uh, optimal, optimized point along your error surface. So this graph you see here, uh, uh, if, like in the three dimension, so the vertical one here is your errors, and then you have, a, assuming you only have two contributing factors, uh, so for uh, two different weights, and so when you're choosing the different values, you may reach different errors. Right, so uh, if you read for a certain combinations, your error may be certain value along that surface here. So if, uh, even for the multiple uh, weights, we can have a hyper dimension and we'll have a hyper surface to correspond to this error surface. So eventually what the back propagation trying to achieve is to work around this error surface, find out the lowest points. It cannot always find out the lowest points but it will try with the given each given iterations um, um, with, with each runs and it's not so how it goes to uh, along here we are going to find out a combination that can give us the worst uh, errors in the um, So in the practice there are a set of learning uh, in the practice the computation of this process is very complex and very complicated it can be even more complicated if you have a, a deeper neural network structures and a lot of parameters that's input. So in, in a practice, uh, the learning is actually done in batch. So you, are, you have, uh, say, 10 million input data you want to learn. They cannot be learned at the same time because that input will be too much for the data, for the algorithm. So they group them into if each individual batch will say 256 or 128 or whichever numbers. So each batch will learn 
we set our weights from the next batch, we will do the we will do that again. Um, so there's a number of parameters uh, associated with that, pro with that entire process. Uh, so you may hear something like an epoch, which means when we go through all the input once, so that maybe goes through any batch, many type of learning process already. And the learning rate is how much you want to cut each time when you want to uh, reduce the error. So if you get higher learning rate, it may be converted faster, but it may uh, have a better, higher chance to miss the optimal solutions for use. Um, then you have a mini batch size, so each input samples of the database. The bigger might, uh, uh, again, might give you a lot of more coarse resolutions, but they help you to run the program uh, bigger. Uh, and the talk is a thing I just mentioned. It's a time of which each sample has been visited because we need to break them into different batch to do that. Uh, the example is one only meanings. If we have one 500 image per batch, then the epoch we will need like 2400 iterations to learn iterations for that. So there's a lot of other uh, parameters uh, to go with it as well. Uh, some of them is a particular is trying to address the overfeeding and underfeeding problems. Um, um, so that's uh, is a very uh, like a big concern in the deep learning is uh, uh, if you give a very complicated, very complex neural network, but a relatively simple set of training data, or your training data is not big enough, they actually may be able to find a solution to exactly describing your training data. This set of parameters actually works perfect for this. Um, but that may not mean it has a general capabilities. So that's what this uh, figure trying to show. Um, on here is your training effort, uh, think about like the cost of your trainings, and on here is your model complexities, uh, and then here is your error on the testing data side. So you may say spend a lot of time, like a lot of computational power, or make your model really complex. Eventually you can reduce your training data side to really, training error to really low, but there would be some possible point where your testing, testing accuracy will not be no longer job and along with your training exercise there. So this part is underfitting, this part is overfitting. So a lot of parameters and the ways in the deep learning uh, neural networks is trying to help you uh, to find out those exactly the perfect optimal fitting points as well. So, so there's uh, some general uh, concept with the deep learning. And then there comes with a set of the different uh, neural networks, layers, and the architectures. Um, I want to maybe introduce one, it's called autoencoders. Um, it's, a, it's a simple one, and it's my uh, easy, it's, it's easier for you if you just start to learn the concept of this. Okay? So, the, so for the autoencoders, it's, uh, it's, like, it's really like an encoding process. Right, so here we have a two-dimensional data points. Um, if we save all of them, and then we may need to save each individual point, so that's not how the storage to do. Uh, but if we know they are forming certain relationships, then we can only serve, we can only return some part of the values and not entirely of all of those. So the auto-encoders auto is based on the ideas, and then we just want basically like 
for your given data set and image, we want to find out a hash, hash code for that. So later on, we can say for this image, we convert it to this hash code, and that hash code uh, can then be, through the reverse neural network, can be used to reconstruct your image. So it's, it's kind of like compression, right? So we compress the data into a certain coding that it can be constructed. Um, so that's the idea about how to encoders. Um, I will cut off the slides for the mathematics. I think I will skip them. So just jump on to the autoencoder examples. Uh, so that's, I have the AE uh, IPython notebook uploaded in the materials there. Um, you can also find it in my slash work right place, um, just in case this Julia notebook doesn't work. Uh, so for these examples, um, so that's, so this is that uh, notebooks here. Um, is there anyone on the Jupyter Cloud right now? Okay. Um, so on the, if you are on the Jupyter Cloud right now, or if, if not, you need, you need to remember this command. Uh, basically, uh, this is an exponential point, uh, which means we are going to call a system command through the Jupyter Cloud. And then you put tab tool and install to manage users. And what if you install is a package. The TensorFlow package, which is a deep learning framework, and the Keras, which is another deep learning framework built on top of TensorFlow, uh, and the Keras.dataset, so which we need that for the, to retrieve the dataset here. Okay. Um, later, I can be posting that line uh, as well. So my notebook was intended to be used with our machine learning resources, so we already have TensorFlow and the Keras built installed there, but for the virtual machines, we do not have that. But once you do this pip uh, install, and it will start downloading a background stuff and do the install, installation for you. Uh, once it's done, you need to go back to kernels and then do a restart kernels and to make it to take it back there. Okay? And you, for this case, you just keep with the Python two kernels. Okay. Uh, if you are able to, just copy this command and let it run now, and then or you can try them later. But once we, I mean, this world here. So what's the rest of the code does? It's a, it's a long notebook. Uh, first is the loading uh, means the data side for testing. So the means the, means the data side, uh, like that the DJ data side we use for the PCA denoising uh, results. Uh, it's a, so you will see something like this if you run successfully. Uh, so the this side you are using is the next this side is about uh, um, handwritten character recombinations. So each of them is a small image block. It's a 28 by 28. Um, and then the means this side comes, uh, consists of uh, uh, 60,000 training this side and 10,000 for the plastic image as well. Um, uh, they both have available in there and you can run them. Um, so let me go down here. Um, so, you, so this is basically the sentence style. It's a goal. Those do not mean that they set the questions. Um, and I have a third one to show some of the uh, results. So it's a, it's a 
looks like this. It's a 6,000 for the mini design, 3,000 for the testing design. Each image exactly looks like this. And you can use a different uh, 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 image to show, to show them. Um, then I have examples of the very simple output encoders with a single lens layers. Um, so this code, because we are using Keras, Keras make uh, deep learning development much easier. Uh, we don't have time to go through the details with the API, but basically what we're doing here is uh, we have the encoding dimensions, and so that's a goal we want to reach. So we want to uh, how you like it's an auto encoder, so we want to encode it into some type of hash code. So the 32 is a dimension of the hash code we are trying to achieve. So after that, it's a, this is a general thing to define the input shapes of the different uh, and then we have the, we want to make one dense layers and using that encoding dimensions and using these particular activation functions and apply to this set of input data. Uh, then that we finish defining them. And for the decoder, it's the same and the reverse, but we're using a different activation function here. Okay? Uh, then it's a similar process. We put our auto encoder, uh, we put the different layers in the model, so that you can call that model, and you can find the to So if you write this block successfully, uh, for some layers of the models, it's, uh, you have a input layers, so that's where your data comes in. It has a dimension of 784, so that's a uh, result of 28 by 28, so that's 100 pixels. Each of those little image heights, and that's your input dimensions. And for the sense layers, we basically want to say from this many of the vectors, we want to set up, you want to package them into a certain dimension of vectors. So that was this sense layer about. So this is number of parameters to part of that. Uh, for the decoders, we will have an input of the certain dimension of the code and the input. That in turn, we want to generate a 784 dimension of the vectors of the output. So the result is a training process. If you run that line, you will see something like this. So this is each iteration is trying to do. Uh, so you see the epoch being seen here. So here we want to do at least a 10 epoch, which means we want the training process goes through all the data at least a times. So, define the batch size, maybe You feel free to shift all those values and to see if there's an identify. And they will report the loss functions and the value appears. And then at the end, it will stop either either after the you already discount after the part of the house you specify. So here's some output for the input. Uh, input image looks like this. And this is reconstruct image, which means goes through our one single layer density coders. We might each of them into a 32 bit code. Then from that code, if we go to a reverse, this is things we can generate. So till here, that's the basics about a auto encoders, right? So in this case, we only have one layer. Um, we basically tell the for the input of, of a 28 by 28 image, now generating a 32 coding for that. Then using that coding schema, 
we can give it an input, we can reconstruct a 784 or 78 by 78 so we made that. Okay, so any questions about this? Okay, so let me uh, go back to my slides. So my, my slides is actually is just a uh, has some documents about what I was just saying, the single-touch layer examples, what we are doing here, um, and what we are transmitting, and this is the result of the mappings. Um, so for this case, we were just doing a single layers, and you can add in additional layers on top of it. If you scroll down the notebook a uh, few blocks more, you will see I have an example where we put three layers of the deep encoders, and we can have multiple layers, and trying to do encode. Now, in a, not directly from 784 to 32, but in this case, we do we go from 784 to 128, then to 64, then to, then to 32 here. So we have a, one more, uh, one three days there uh, to reach the 32. Then the decoding is exactly the reverse process. So that constitutes a dense layers. It has a significantly more amount of parameters it needed to learn and to write. So one of the things you can use uh, auto encoder directly, you can use them for a number of things. One is that you can use them as an index, we have in this case, the encode hash code is something you can directly see and you can directly use. And the other thing you can people can use is use it as a noise filter as well because when you it's a similar idea with the PCA. Uh, when you choose a subset of the components, you capture the mean uh, uh, part and the input input this side. And here the auto encoder is also encoding the majority information of your input data. But so a lot of noise points may be filtered out eventually by the process. So in the notebook, I have some further uh, uh, examples to show how it can be used uh, as a denoising uh, filters. Um, so in these examples, we start with a little data side. We actually uh, manually add a lot, a lot of housing noise in the image, so the image looks now simply. You see all those little white dots we are adding to it. But if we tweak, Image. Uh, but if we train our data with a clean image and then we give a noisy inside to it, it's actually can do a good job to ignore the noise and reconstruct the image. Yes? I have a question. So, you This parameter is suitable for this set of data because we actually have a, a 60,000 image and each image is 784, uh, 784 vectors. So for the at least for the parameters we are using here, it's it's, it's okay. It's uh, uh, you can you can the other thing you can see is uh, the deep auto encoder for this case. 
is actually not, not effective comparing to the single layer. So they basically perform the same. So that's another cue to tell you we probably need more data for it to work better as well. Yeah. So your concern is a crime. So the more parameter, the more complicated data you want to use, uh, the network you want to use, you need more data to make it uh, meaningful. But uh, on the other hand, is uh, um, you what you will get is uh, you may get some uh, redundant layers. Some layers less effective. Uh, that you probably just want to get rid of them. So it there does exist in some kind of correlation. The more data you have, uh, the more complex the network you have. You can get a better result just getting complex result, complex network without this substantial data to backing it up. You won't be able to get a good result. Okay. So autoencoder is a is a simple example to show how the deep learning structures and the process. Um, the um, I have a number of more slides. I'm thinking to do it now or the way it's time for that or we can another two minutes. So in the deep learning, uh, I would be feel bad let you go before let you know what's a CNN, what's a RFN, APIs. So that's are the two most commonly used uh, neural network structures. So you know previously when we just mentioned a dense layer, which is just a strictly a linear um, combination of input and output, the convolution of neural network uh, is very interesting. It's not just to do that, right? It's applied a convolution of layers to it. So in part, it's also trying to do is uh, it's trying to reduce the number of parameters required to be learned. So that's exactly also address the question you were mentioning. So the reason we have such high number of parameters is because we need to treat each input like something before in the minimum order dimension. So that's not that up. If we can quickly reduce our input dimensions, we can reduce the subsequential subsequent uh, parameters we need to learn. So even now, uh, in my notebook, there's an example of the other deep autoencoder. There's an example where we are not just using dense layer, but using a convolutional layers in between them. So you will see that one has a smaller number of parameters you need, and, the, and it's equally effective. So one of the ideas of the convolutional layers is, is act as a filters. So the convolutional layers is a kind of a very small matrix. So in this examples, it's actually a three by three matrix. So what it does is acts as a filters. Um, like this is your original image, but eventually each image is a bit map. Uh, so it's represented by some type of values. And then you can apply your filters all uh, across your image. Then what you get depends on how you define your filters is actually generating some useful features of it. So for this particular one, what it does is does trying to highlight the lines, structures inside your image here. So that's what the convolutionary convolutional layers trying to do. It's act, it acts as a little windows, goes through your image or goes through input, and it will generate a more uh, uh, a like the uh, matrix consists of more on your local, local layers. 
So convolution, the name is a, a corresponding to a mathematical operation in, in here. It's a, fun, it's a function transformation operations uh, not given to uh, matrix. It's actually very similar to the multiplications. Um, so here, uh, what it shows is um, you have an input. This is your original image. And this is the convolutional filters, which also refer as the kernels. And then you have the original data and the uh, uh, ABCDF here, and your kernel has a certain weight. And then you do a matrix multiplications, and then you can you can get in a new matrix with that with this result. So your your input will be a four by three, and that your output will be a three by two. Uh, uh, so it's a slightly shifting between your input and output due to the IH effect. Okay. So this is a, a actual computations about how it works. So this is original matrix, and this is your convolutional filters you want to apply. So it's a, it's a act as a sliding windows, uh, go through them, and the generating is three by three. So you are you're really put it five by five, now it's became a three by three. There's other ways you can make it as uh, uh, the same dimension as your original one, but normally it's called piping process. But normally that is uh, uh, it's used in some cases. Uh, so one thing is the convolutional features. So two things convolutional features does is uh, one is uh, uh, to generating a getting some aspect of your features from your image. So for example, for this image, so this is real black white image, and if you apply a simple kernel, kernel like this, you get the outlines of the animals rather than the details of the animals. So it gives you some higher level localized features. And the other thing it does is uh, comparing to the dense layers. So one thing you notice is we need uh, uh, a huge amount of parameters because there are a huge amount of computation. So if we apply the convolutions, it's much smaller steps, much smaller computations to reconstructing this type of memory. Okay. And the other things about the convolutional neural network is usually uh, when we say convolutional layers, it consists of not filters we apply through the through your original input matrix, but also followed by a pooling stage where we further shrinking the the matrix input size. So the pooling is a uh, is really just to say if I want to do a two by two for uh, pooling is uh, we want to just consider in uh, our matrix as a two by two plot and for the two by two plot I have different choice if I do the max poolings I will just look at these two by two blocks and report the maximum values within the, within these two by two blocks. So this will be, say, if I do max pooling, uh, this block will convert me to a four, and this block will convert me to a five, and this block will convert into a three, and this one convert me back here. So when we say the convolutional layers, you always consider of a, a kernel, which is small filters, three by three, four by four, five by five, that can help you to focusing on certain features we want to detect. Then followed by max pooling layers, that are trying to aggregate those things and to emphasize that signals, those uh, signals out. Okay. So the pooling helps reduce complexities 
but also helps emphasize these local features we want to be, we want to identify so that makes the whole model can be less affected by different orientation of the image. So the local translation is a big problem with the image recognitions. Um, what we mean by that is uh, before the deep learning, before we have a way to handle the translation, uh, the file version like this way and the file version like this way is very hard to be considered the same. But with the computational layer with the tools, and what we are trying to represent is the local features. Like there's a there's a small uh, small curve here, there's a small line here, there's there's a small line there. So that can make the models more invariance to those local translations. So that's a big factors contribute to why deep learning is so good and so much effective when applied to the image uh, uh, image recognition problems here. So here are just some more examples. Uh, I can skip this. Um, and this is another example about the uh, data side. So that's the data side we use for the auto encoders. Uh, this is uh, one of the uh, uh, papers for the LE night uh, proposal. So um, you can find the papers. Uh, I, I should have a reference somewhere. Uh, but it's a fairly um, simple neural uh, networks. It's easier to understand. So they start with the convolutionary convolutional layers with the 5 by 5 filters. Uh, so they have six layers of it. So that's how we want to do basically want to say we want to try to find in six different features that we can extract it by the convolutional layers. Uh, then you go through a subsampling, which is pooling uh, layers, and then you go through from uh, initially 32 by 32 input. After your convolutional uh, layer filters, you get 28 by 28. Then you do a pooling, and you get a 14 by 14. So it's a, a two, uh, two to one uh, uh, samples. Uh, then you can uh, apply the convolutions to these layers again, and do the pooling again. Then you do a dense fully connect layers and to and mapping them back and mapping them eventually mapping them into the class labels, which is uh, uh, each individual characters. Uh, so the other very commonly used neural network structure is the RNA. This is stands for recurrent neural networks. It's an even more complex than the convolutional neural network. Not convolutional neural network is only uh, the, the significant contribution is just introducing the, the kernel functions and the points. What the RN trying to resolve is the limitation of the convolutional neural networks by uh, being able to take a uh, streaming data or a sequence of the data. So what's the R so RN RN was commonly used for modeling a sequence input. Uh, so some example uh, people doing is uh, trying to automatically comps with a caption to describe what's the, what this video sequence people trying to do. So the person riding a bike out there. So uh, if you're using YouTube and use some of the captions is written by people's like explanations, but this method can help to automatically generate those description for this video or what this sequence about. Um, the other uh, usage in the machine in the NLP is to use it to actually do sentimental analysis according to your entire documents, but not uh, not by single uh, individual words. 
uh, and also the, the, the RN has been used a lot in the machine translations as well. So that's the type of the use case in the recurrent neural networks. Um, so, so if you think about in an abstract way, for the neural networks, we can think about multiple input, head layers, and the output. For the output encoders, the output will be coding or it can be hot back. For the computationary neural networks, and we just have a special operations inside the hidden layers here. So that's all the same. But for the RNN, what's the difference is uh, we want to uh, model this over a sequence. So we can apply this to uh, data from one time point, but to for the time zero, time one, time three. So we want to keep that uh, effect uh, that can be applied to the next timing steps. So if you know that network, so that network uh, has a, this kind of a feedback loop, which essentially to say some of the things I learned from the first frame will be carried over to the next frame when I try to do the analysis. Uh, when you know that over time, what you get is uh, at time zero, it looks like a simple neural network. I think we have output, but some of the output will be carried over when you do the next run of the analysis. And then again, you carry over to the next one and that's it, and then all the way to the end. So they have this kind of history we are trying to capture. So how much, how long that history capture um, is the difference between different parameters and different networks it's trying to do. Um, yeah, so RNN is much more complex, uh, complex neural networks. Um, so I will just give you the introduction here, and if you get a chance to use it, you need a Another way of lecture just talk about more detail with different things. Uh, so I will end my lecture basically here. But uh, this is a uh, very fascinating graphs I found. You can I have a URL at the beginning. Uh, it's just we capture different type of the neural networks architectures out there, right? So you see, it's not just the auto encoders, perceptrons, multi-layer perceptrons, uh, RCN and RN. There are a lot of other Neural networks architectures people try to propose and try to be applied to the machine real cases. So yeah, it's a bit a rush to the rest of the content. But but deep learning itself is an upcoming field and by itself is a deserve of big lectures to give you a full understanding about usefulness, limitation of how to use Okay, so but for today I'm gonna stop here. Any questions you want to ask now? Or, uh, my autoencoder uh, notebook has an example up to the, uh, the denoising filters. So uh, please go ahead to play with it and let me know if you have more questions. That's all. Volvemos entonces una y cuarto para tener exactamente una hora para la